So, who is Simon Ross? The man behind that amazing voice that wakes you up every morning and puts that ridiculous smile on your face. Known to the nation as Rossi, so his real name is Simon Ross, but he's known to the nation as Rossi. Uh, the host of the Greatest Hits Breakfast Show, 17th of January, 1967, Omar. That's where it all started. But who's the man behind the voice? That's the intro written down, nothing else written down. It's me and Rossi on a journey. Hello, sir. Well, Peter, what an intro indeed, and thank you very much for having me on your podcast. My pleasure. Rossi, you never get chance to talk because... We do a radio show. People don't want to hear about you in the mornings because people don't understand the structure behind breakfast shows. They don't understand what it's all about. And it is an industry. I mean, these people that say, I could do that, makes me so cross. But I wanted to spend some time with you now to find out who Rossi is. Now, Omar, that conjures up a minefield of bad memories to me, of bad, bad times. That's where you were born. That's where you grew up. So I want to find out who Rossi is. Then we'll talk about your career, but let's find out. So who is, first of all, I've got to ask the big question, is that your real name? Because in show business, people change their <laughs> name. So what's your real name? Uh, my Well, I was born in Arma. There's Oma and Arma. Ah, Arma. <laughs> and I was born, uh, yeah, January 67, and I popped out into the world. Um, I'm uh, JP McCusker is, is what I'm called back home. And I was actually given the JP uh, name before I popped out into the world, uh, named after my dad's father, who was John. And my mother's father, who was Patrick, Patsy. And uh, they said, let's, let's name him, if it's a boy, John Patrick, we'll give him JP. And uh, when I was born, my late grandfather, John, was in hospital and he sent a telegram to my mum. And he said, congratulations to you and JP. And had the people at the telegram office underline JP so it wasn't for changing. Wow. So wow. that's that's. So that. tell me the difference in the two towns. Uh, well, uh, Omar, Omar and Arma. Omar is uh, is is a fair a fair bit away from from Armagh. Now, Armagh is a city. It's a tiny city, and the only reason why we've got city status is because we've got two cathedrals, both of which are called Saint Patrick. Saint Patrick's Cathedral is the Church of Ireland, and then there's the Roman Catholic, and that is the only reason. It is tiny. It really is tiny. There's there's towns uh, in and around the Liverpool area which are bigger than than Armagh. Uh, Omar is in County. Tyrone, which is a you know it's it's a good uh, a good forty five minute journey away from Armagh. So which one was where all the troubles were? Well, to be honest, again, I grew up in and around the city of Armagh. It was the outskirts uh, where where it was uh, it could get a little bit uh, a little bit dodgy at times. Uh, South Armagh was uh, was also nicknamed Bandit Country for many many years. You've probably heard that term on television and the radio. Um, the, uh, so I grew up. To be honest, I've got to be honest with you. I grew up in the 70s and I didn't really know any different. So it was really, and, and it sounds, it, it doesn't sound right in saying it, but it was almost the norm. But standing on the outside looking in, it was anything but normal. But it was the norm. It, it was what we were used to hearing on the news at six o'clock every night. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I didn't know any different, so I was never scared. But looking back... I could see why people over here or even in the far deep, you know, south of Ireland, down by Kerry and Waterford and places like that in Cork, would think, oh, my God, I don't want to go to Belfast or I don't want to go to Armagh. I could see why they'd have that perception. 
But I had, a, I had a really happy time growing up. That's really interesting, that. I went over there working for the troops. I, well, first of all, I went over to Belfast to work uh, in a club um, which was a, right in the middle of the gated area where we had to yeah. go through so many pieces of security. I then went to work, and the hotel I'd worked in had been bombed twice. Uh, the other hotel I stayed in had been bombed. It, it was weird. Then I went over working for the army and experienced being a attacked when I was in what they call the pigs, which was the, the yeah. armoured car. So to me, the fear of going to Ireland, I went because the money was good, oh, yeah. but they also loved the idea that English acts would go and I wanted to experience it. I was scared. So when I I, I, I realised where you came from, I, I can't imagine. You've just said, looking in, it's a different thing. But you grew up with it. I did. And I, I went to college in Belfast for two fabulous years. Uh, glorious, brilliant years. And that was like between 83 and 85. And, and you know, that was, it was quite a troublesome time there. And again, I, I knew it was going on, but I wasn't walking around feeling cautious. The weird thing was, and I'm not sure if you experienced this, but... If you were going into the city centre, so everything was sort of barricaded off. So when you were going into the city centre, you were frisked walking All through. The time. Yeah. And, uh, and they had the little metal detectors that they used to sort of, uh, you know, sort of go up and down your person uh, as you went into uh, all the major shops like Topshop and places like that. Um, again, I didn't know any different. And funny, I was talking to a policewoman last week. And, uh, and she, she asked me where it's from. And I said, it's funny, when, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, um, if there was a police patrol, not a police man or woman, a police patrol, it would be a minimum of six, three of the side of the street. And they would have their, uh, their handgun revolvers and the machine guns. So when I landed in London in January 1986 and saw a Bobby on his own walking down the street in his hard hat and a, and a truncheon, I just couldn't believe it. I, I, I just couldn't believe it. But it was... Um, it was one of those things that took a wee while to get used to, to be perfectly honest. See, I never thought about that. So you grew up with guns, police carrying guns. Yeah. And machine guns, submachine guns, whatever. But that was the norm for you. Yeah, as I said, it was. I, we, I didn't know any different. I, I really, really didn't know any different. I was very, very blessed, though. And I, I don't ever really get into religion or politics, but I was very blessed to have been brought up uh, in communities where there was a good mixture of both particularly in my latter years when I was uh, turned about 12, 13, latter years living in, in Ireland. Um, and I, I never really took into consideration where people went to pray over weekend. May that be a Saturday, a Sunday or a Friday. I never, ever, it, I, I didn't, you, never in my life did I ever take that into consideration. What you did and where you prayed was, it was you, your business um, yeah. and how you were with me as a person is how we got on. And that was it. If you just join me, I'm talking to Simon Ross about the early days in Ireland. Where you lived, were there areas where there were no-go areas? Um, I know when I lived in Belfast, uh, I lived in a place called the Antrim Road, a lovely, great big red brick four-storey house, and it was digs. Um, and it was lovely. Uh, but there was no way on heaven's earth would I walk from the Antrim Road into town. It's walkable, but absolutely no way, not a chance. You got the bus there, and you got the bus back. You did not walk, and it would have, you'd have been a fool. A stranger in areas of Belfast would stand out like a sore thumb. You would be spotted immediately. Mm -hmm. And if you weren't known in that area, 
they'd want to know what you were doing there, and it, it, it probably wouldn't end well. Where were you up to today? You go back all the time. You've yeah. got a lot of family there, uh, and now you've lived out of it for so long, and you look in and see the troubles. Will there ever be real peace in Northern Ireland? By the way, love the people. The welcome I got was incredible, even though I was fearful. Yeah. But then I went back and fell in love with the place. But will there ever, ever be? Or is it too deeply rooted? Do you know something? I was just home. Uh, my dad turned 81 on the 25th of July. And uh, and I went home and I stopped off in a beautiful little coastal town in County Down called Donaghadee. And, uh, and I caught up with friends that I went to Belfast with. He, he's a Protestant lad. He was my best friend. He's still one of my best friends ever. I grew up as a Catholic. We, we've remained I'm godfather to his son. And we hung out and we had a great time. And then I travelled to Armagh to, to spend time with my dad. And then I travelled uh, across the border to Donegal where my mum lives with my stepdad. And do you know, I didn't see any evidence of anything, really. I, you know, there, there still are parts, but there are in all major cities where it's a little bit dodgy and you'd think twice about going in there, particularly in an evening, and going in on your own if you weren't familiar with the area. And that's just, uh, I think, that that's just the way it is. But I didn't see any real evidence of anything other than just people getting on with their lives, to be honest. Now, your best mate was a Protestant. You were a Catholic. Did that cause any problems growing up? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We used to laugh at bigots. We used to laugh at the at, at people that would be, um, you know, going on about it. how 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 can you dislike someone when you haven't met them and you don't know anything about them, uh, but only because of the opposite religion of you? How can you? I could never get my head around that. And most people couldn't. And most people, I would genuinely say, most people got on and uh, and didn't really bother. It was it's a minority, and it's it's like. You know, no one's ever going to make the headlines for being decent and good. But you do something really bad, you're going to be all over the uh, front pages. Just staying with this, one more question yes. on this. Did you ever experience violence? Did you ex ever experience getting near to a bomb disaster or a killing? Yes, uh, to all of those. I uh, got chased a couple of times by some rather rather bad boys, and uh, and luckily I was uh, I was able to, to to get away. I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you this story. So we used to go to places like Killarney for our summer holidays every June or August. Sorry, July, August. Yeah, my dad would take two weeks off, and as a family we would go. And part of that experience would leave on a Sunday morning uh, with all the suitcases and the packed lunches and everything else. But the part of the, the Saturday before, my mum would take myself and my sister into town to get new buckets and spades and how you had to get new buckets and spades so we went to Woolworths this Saturday afternoon and uh, I picked my bucket and spade my sister picked my, her bucket and spade I was standing and suddenly mum I didn't notice anything we were too obsessed with the toys and everything else you know what Woolies was like and the next thing my mother took off like Linford Christie bang way down the aisle and then she stops and turns on her heels and comes running back and I'm going still didn't get onto it and she goes, there's a bomb. There's a bomb we've all told to, be, to get out. Get out the store, Woolworths. So she grabs me and my sister, or my sister and I, I should say, by the hands. And she's running us back down the aisle again to the front door to get out, as we're all being evacuated. And then realises that my sister and I still had the buckets and spades in her other hand. So being as honest as the day is long, she took them off us and ran back to the actual aisle and put them back on the shelf and then got all of us out. Uh, we were evacuated. It must have been an hour or so. Where we were, everybody was out and clear and it eventually did go up. So it did. 
Tell them that was it, that yeah. the nearest to trouble you ever saw. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I was, I've, I've heard a few explosions going off and the, the windows shuddering in your house and stuff like that, but. It's, see, it's interesting because we, living in England, watch the telly. Yeah. You would never have heard that story. So you basically have grown up quite blessed that yeah. you, 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 you grew up with police carrying uh, arms. You grew up um, uh, uh, knowing there was trouble, but really not experiencing it in a way. I genuinely didn't. I think I look back and I just have really happy memories. Yes, there were terrible times. There's no denying that. Uh, You'd have to really bury your head in the sand to say otherwise. But I just had great times, great friends, great family memories, you know, with my grandparents, who I loved, loved dearly. They were were just brilliant. Uh, I mean, I really embraced my grandparents, my aunties and uncles. I, I just had a fabulous time. I didn't do the best at school as I should have done. That's to be sure. But I always got on very well with my teachers because I was always very respectful. A little bit cheeky, but always respectful. And I made some great friends. I made great friends when I was four or five years of age, who I'm still in contact with. Um, I made friends through college years and in Belfast, as I say. I'm still in contact with them as well. Um, so, yeah, I can only look back with really, really fond and, as you say, blessed memories. Rossi. Yes. Did you ever have a proper job? <laughs> I love that when, when people ask us that. Did you ever have a proper job? Well, you and I both had a proper job, exactly the same uniform as well. And uh, yes, we uh, we wore our, our whites and our check trousers and we were both chefs. And I, again, I had a great, great time training. I trained at a, I did a pre-catering course in, in, in Armagh at the Technical College. And then there was a course that only 30 people out of 400 applicants got chosen for. And I worked really, really hard that year at the pre-catering course. And I ended up getting into the College of Business Studies in Belfast. And uh, and that took me down to uh, working in places in, like Waterford on the coast and and Kerry, which is my maybe my favourite county in Ireland. I just love it. And then I went to London and I worked there as a chef and I learned lots and lots working in some fabulous restaurants. And then out to Australia, I worked there. My last chef gig, I was the sous chef at the Royal Albert Hall, would you believe? Wow. Wow, that's that's amazing. It, it was staying with catering because we both did catering. I've lost touch. I'm a great cook, but I've lost touch with everything. Mm. And I always remember um, doing, uh, uh, which you did as well. I did uh, an interview with Paul Askew, who owns the art school, yeah. with his new book. And you did the same. You did one at his restaurant, and I did one in Waterford's, uh, Waterstones. But I came away sad because I realised how far back I am away from the catering of today. It has changed ginormously. There are new inventions, there's new herbs, there's new... And I felt sad about it. It's, it's definitely become more a science. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, with these water baths and these, you know, uh, that, you see it on, on the Great British Menu, the processes that they use uh, compared to what we... We were trained with uh, back in the day. And um, the other thing I would struggle with is, because common sense has been taken out of the equation, I would struggle with all the new health and safety um, rules and regulations and this board for that and that board for this. And I guess, I guess it sounds very oh, straightforward. The yeah, yeah, the chopping board. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, my friend who I stayed with in Donegal D last week, um, he, he's just come out of the catering industry and he said, you know what? I very rarely get to cook. He said, I'm too busy filling in forms, checking uh, wow. details of temperatures in fridges and this, that and the other. And he goes, I don't really get to cook. I've got to delegate. And, 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 and my sous chefs, they get on with the, you know, the hands-on stuff. And he said, I'm, I'm filling out forms. That would bore me. That would, I just wouldn't enjoy that. That's horrendous. 
Now, we have run a... a, I've never asked you... Well, I've never done this interview before, but I've never asked you this question. So I'm working, running three restaurants with my chef's outfit on, and the band had had a problem. I said, let's have uh, a disco session. I didn't know what a disco was, by the way. There was only one person in this city I knew was a DJ, and that was Billy Butler, and he was at a place called the Mardi Gras. I got up in my chef's outfit with 10 records... That's, in a nutshell, how it started for me. How did you become, from a chef, to now one of our top presenters in the country? Um, well, I was a trendy young buck. Uh, I was very much into the Duran Duran thing, so I was the only guy around my neck of the woods wearing leather trousers and stuff like that. And I was at a after... It wasn't an after school for kids. It was an after college uh, sort of afternoon disco it was uh, i think to celebrate going into the christmas holidays so we were all down in this place called loudons and it was downstairs and it was very it was very french bohemian kind of place it was quite cool and this guy that was doing the disco said he needed someone because he was getting really busy and he had equipment to do two two or three different events at the same time and he went would you be interested in coming working for me? And I went, yeah, cocky as you like. Hadn't Again, I hadn't a clue. This was uh, December 1982. I was 15 and I was full of myself. And uh, two nights later, I was working in the cricket club in Armagh, the beautiful Mal. And, uh, and there I was spinning seven-inch records. Really, really no idea. I just cut my teeth and made my mistakes and got away with it and talked in between the records. And then suddenly I was doing it just about every weekend, and I was doing big clubs, etc. Then when I got into the catering full-time, I used to listen to the radio all the time, and I thought, there is something I would love to do. So then I did hospital radio, and hospital radio was really a, a fantastic springboard. For so many. For so many, yeah, for so many. I worked in hospital radio St. Stephen's, which was a very famous uh, hospital in London uh, in the 1980s. And uh, and I got familiar by, by taking requests and reading out requests to doing my own show. Again, making lots and lots of mistakes and, you know, being tutored and being encouraged. And and I just listened to radio nonstop from the minute my eyes opened in the morning till I went to sleep of a night time. The radio was always nearby. And... Um, I just became a student of radio and just studied it and studied the presenters I really, really liked. And finally, I I got a demo out and got myself a couple of gigs. So the difference between you and I, it wasn't seven inches, it were 45s for me. Oh, (laughs) yes. So the little tiny ones. So if you wanted to go to the bathroom and the record stuck and you were having a wee and you could hear them jeering and booing (laughs) because... So I didn't have the luxury of a seven-inch record. Right. (coughs) Excuse me. It's fascinating that we've run alongside. When did you realise, or who was the first person that ever told you, if you remember, that you've got the most amazing radio voice? Oh, thank you for that. Um, I'll tell you, my voice broke when I was about 11 or 12. That's very young. And uh, I'll tell you the first time I knew my voice was slightly different to my school chums (laughs) was we had a great English teacher called Mrs O'Hare. And you didn't mess with Mrs. O'Hare. Miss O'Hare, I beg your pardon, she never married. Fabulous. Kitty O'Hare. And she did uh, English language and English literature. And she had a little study off the side of the classroom, like a little mini library. So she would give us coursework to do. And then she would take the homework we'd done the previous night, if I'd done it. And then she would take it into the, uh, the little library and she'd be correcting it and marking it and all the rest of it. And she came out. And we'd all be talking. You know what it's like? As soon as the teacher's out of sight, we'd all be chatting. And she'd, she'd single me out. And she'd go, you, stop your talking. Stop your talking. 
To which I would say, well, how do you know I'm talking on when everybody else talks? Why are you picking a miss? It's because I can hear your growl above all the little squeals across the cr- classroom. And uh, that was the sort of first time I realised that, uh, you know, my, my voice is deep-ish. Um, and th- then, it, I don't know, it, uh, a few people used to mention it, but it was just my voice to me. It was just my voice. I didn't think anything of it, really. It's weird that you say that uh, because... Growing up, as we both have with radio in our lives, there are voices you know straight away. You just know uh, these voices. And you don't think about how... Because mine is nothing like yours, but it's a totally different type of voice. But on radio, like yours, it just stands out. Yeah, People go, I know that voice. Excuse me, are you on... It's that. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing, isn't it? Can I tell you uh, a, a story? I was I was shopping in uh, in Liverpool, one in Liverpool. I was coming up to Christmas, I was buying something in a shoe shop, right? And uh, and my bank cards are my real name, okay? So bank cards are real name. But sometimes people get onto my voice. Then they see the name in the bank card and they think, maybe not, maybe it's not him, maybe it's not him. And this was really funny. This young girl was serving me. So she said, do you know who you sound like? And I'm thinking she's going to say Rossi. I was working at Radio City at the time. I goes, go on then. She goes, you sound like Eamon Holmes. <laughs> so so I said to her, really? I said, don't you think I sound a bit more like that Rossi of the radio? She goes, nah, you don't sound anything like him. You sound, <laughs> you sound like Eamon Holmes. <laughs> and then she started to go red and you went, you're Rossi, aren't you? <laughs> I thought that was very funny. I very love funny. stuff like that. What was your first professional gig on radio? Uh, well, it did in-store radio, Radio Top Shop, Radio HMV in London, which was massive. Uh, in the early 90s. And then I was doing a lot of swing work on different radio stations, filling in with people on holidays like uh, Radio Orwell in Ipswich, Power FM in Hampshire, Ocean FM, Southern FM. But my first full-time gig in commercial radio uh, was given to me by the late, great John Myers team, as we affectionately knew him, and he called us team, at Red Rose Rock FM. Uh, it was the 19th of November, 1992. I did the evening show there, uh, 7 till 10, uh, for a good couple of years. And then I went on to a drive-time show, uh, Rossi's Rhythm Driven Drive. Say that again. Exactly. Rossi's <laughs> Rhythm Driven Drive. I'd struggle with that. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> and I did that, from, uh, I did that from 94 to 98, um, mm. before moving down to work in London for a couple of years. Have you always been a music jock? Have you ever done radio like I do with talk? This is the thing. No, it's like you mentioned very early on in this conversation that people say, well, anyone could do that. I've been in radio full time since 91. I couldn't do what you used to do week in, week out, night in, night out. You know what? I could come on and be a guest, but I could not do uh, three, four hours of speech radio. And uh, the work and the talent that is to do that, that it takes to do that, is, is pretty phenomenal, I would say. Well, without sort of scratching each other's back, I couldn't do what you do because I couldn't do the discipline because people don't understand the structure of radio. They don't understand why some shows are successful and some aren't. People do not understand what radio is about, do they? Not really. I mean, my breakfast show, I would say, is fairly structured in many ways. Uh, A lot of the, the daily content I'm allowed to choose and talk myself um, I sort that out mostly. I've got a great producer, uh, Alex Toll, producer Al, who's really technically on the ball, and he can think 
almost what I'm thinking before I've thought it. You know, that sort of relationship. You've had that relationship yourself yeah. with uh, great producers over the years. So it's fairly structured. But the one thing you must never make it sound is structured. And uh, you know what I mean? Um, so with with the features and, and benchmarks within my show, I try to keep it as very informal in my delivery as possible and try not to sound too scripted um, and try to sound very ad hoc and ad lib. You're now in one of the biggest places you've ever been. You're now national completely uh, through the greatest hits. Um, Has it put pressure on you at all? I've got a couple of really good bosses, uh, Andy and uh, Salty. Um, And to be honest, I I think it's four or five years I've been doing the National Breakfast Show. I think I've been told off maybe two or three times. And that's it. They're really encouraging and great at moulding. And and so you're never you're never going to go out and score a hat trick in every game. You know you do have days that is that, that are not your best, and they've really take that into consideration. So I don't feel pressure as such, but I know it's a big job in hand. But I'm always always prepared. I'm here just after five a.m. I'm good to go at six. I walk to work. Gave my car up a couple of years ago, so it's a mile and a half to work. And a mile and a half back home again. And by the time I've walked to work, and I'm up since 10 past four of the morning, come six o'clock, I'm ready to take on the world. And so my mind's alert. And, you know, I'm focused. And I know where I'm going. But I do like to keep that casualness sound. And as I said, not too scripted, not too formatted. Uh, that, that That's what I like to try and get across. Which is a gift. And that's what people don't understand about radio. They, that's, they're the ones that say, I could do that, because they don't understand. Hopefully that's given you a little insight into Simon Ross, who I'm talking to about radio. Simon, you are a music fanatic. You love music. There's nothing you don't know about music. Over the years, what has been the best time for you in radio, for music? I don't even have to give that a split-second thought. Not even a nanosecond. 80s. I mean, 80s. I mean, between 82 and 88, it was just the charts were alive. It was a very much more innocent time. Um, There was certainly before the era of social media, mobile phones. I mean, there were mobile phones towards the uh, mid to late 1980s, but they were like big bricks and they cost you a fortune. So not many people had them. Uh, And I just thought it was, there was, as I say, an innocence, but it was glamorous and it was showbiz as well. Uh, so for me, definitely the 1980s. When you mentioned then social media, we've seen a huge change. When we first started, social media didn't exist. Um, so people can criticise us quite openly and publicly. And hopefully one day it will be policed properly. I don't think I'll ever live to see that because I think it's quite vile. Do you think it's altered the way you are on radio? even though you've got that structure, because you have so much pressure from social media. I am so lucky, Peter. I am so lucky, and I don't want to tempt fate here, but I don't get much criticism. I'm really lucky enough. But I use social media as a real happy place. So if you, there's some you know quirky pics, a lot of my dog, Mickey Boy, uh, Emma, my wife, and I out and about, some pics of myself and uh, producer Al, or if we, you know, like we, we go out of, we had lunch a few weeks ago, and and it, so it's my my social media is very much like the output of greatest hits. It's it's about good times, 
And uh, if I want to have a moan about something, I normally pick up the phone and I'll, I'll phone a friend or phone my wife, Emma, and have a little bit of a moan. So I try and keep all that positive. And as a, as a result, I'm lucky that I don't get much kickback uh, on social. We've seen ridiculous changes in radio. Yeah. When radio first started, Radio 1 was monster. 20 million, 15 million, ridiculous figures. It's changed. Where do you think radio, go- radio is going? I mean, you're on a major station, which is part of a major company, but taking that hat off, you as a presenter, you as somebody who loves music, you who is somebody who's been in the industry a long time, where do you think radio is going and where do you think it's going to finish up? Do you know, it's really hard to say. Um, do you know, when I started on Radio City in 2005, um, you know, it was young. We were playing all the modern current chart stuff, but there were, you know, in there you're getting classics and greatest hits as well. Now, when I hear hits or Radio City uh, I'm, there's a lot of the artists I'm not quite familiar with and remember I've been into music since I could walk since I could you know I know everything about music too yeah and um, so that that what, that side of radio I'm not quite sure but I do believe that radio stations like Greatest Hits and I'm not just saying that because I work on it has got a fairly long shelf life because You've got three major decades that gave us loads and loads of fabulous, memorable hits. Can you imagine, in 30 years' time, a presenter like myself, at the age I am now, getting as excited in 30 years' time about introducing the song that was number one this week? You know, 2023. Frankly, I don't think anyone will remember it. Um, I think people, it, it's it's so disposable. And this isn't a criticism of the music. It's just like, you know, it's a number one hit and suddenly it's yesterday's news. Yeah. In many cases, not in every case. So as the future of radio in that respect, I'm not quite sure. But for now, stations like Greatest Hits Radio, I do, I do see, you know, lasting for, for a, good, a, good, a good few years to come. As a working comic, I used to do a routine about what you would sing on a coach. And now you wouldn't sing any of these songs on a coach, but you would sing You To Me Or Everything. You'd sing a Whitney song. Yeah. You'd, say, you, you'd sing a Beatles song. It's just, it is a different world. I can, I can say that quite openly. It's ridiculous the way it's changed to me. Uh, and, of course, so many people listen now on the phones. Yeah, well, I, we, isn't that bizarre for someone who loves radio as much as I do? I don't have a radio in my house anymore. I have two. I, Shame we, on you. I, I should have, but we've got uh, our good friend Alexa, yeah. and uh, and I've got the apps for radio stations that I like, yeah. and, and that's all we need, really. That's all we need. I mean, there is something really nice switching on a proper, good, fa- old-fashioned wireless radio. And that sound. Especially trying to tune it in. Yeah. <laughs> People won't know what we're talking about now. No, they won't indeed. Um, you know, but we, it's, it's weird. I said, it was only recently yeah. I pointed that out. I said, well, I work in the radio, yeah. but I don't have a radio in my house. And I, I don't think I'm on my own in that, in that scenario. Your lovely lady is charming. She keeps you grounded, which is great. You've got a great relationship, a uh, daughter to die for, a dog to die for. You've got a great life. Do you realize how much pleasure? you give to people out there do you, do you ever think about that? that that one person who is so unhappy and so depressed and has no life and waits for the radio to go in the morning does it ever cross your mind 
I don't take it for granted that that's what I do. But let me tell you, there was two occasions that you and I have, and, and anyone listening to this podcast now has never experienced, and that was one, lockdown, and two, the death of a monarch. And I know through the period of lockdown that I did become that voice of a morning, waking people up, people maybe only two to a house, maybe on their own. And when that period between the Queen passing and, and the funeral, again, it was a very, very sad time right across the UK. The feedback that we got here on, uh, on, on you know, an email, on text, etc., etc., really struck that note home that the importance of radio that it was to people's lives and and the words were very very kind and as i always say those kind of comments they never come expected but they never go unappreciated mm. so those two times in recent years was brand new to all of us and 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 i really really noticed how important radio and that one to one way of broadcasting was to people yeah. at those times. You mentioned two very good subjects. One, let's talk about the the, the late monarch who I've grown up with um, and I am a royalist. End of story. I am a royalist and I thought it was incredibly sad. What people don't realise, and I don't know how much has changed because I'm not in radio anymore, so you can tell me, but years ago if somebody died, especially a royal, there was a plan in place over the way music went. There used to be a tape we put on, and it was an old tape. Yeah. What happens now? Yeah, it's, it's a, called the obituary process, and, uh, and yeah, we absolutely, all jingles, ads dropped, and all the music is very, very selected uh, very carefully, um, and obviously it has to be of a certain tempo, and uh, and, and, and we are sombre, and we, we deliver in, in that sombre tone. We, we don't come on like I normally do, all singing, all dancing. Hey, hey, it's great. Um, here comes the weekend, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and you do it accordingly. And I think it's instilled in you over the years. You know, when it comes, you're going, oh my word, we're into this now. We we got to do this. But it's instilled in you over the years what would be expected in these scenarios and these situations. And you just got to deliver. The other situation you mentioned was the lockdown. When it first started, um, I was on radio, so I was coming out. Um, and we were allowed out, but we had to have a pass to get out yeah. because we are journalists, whatever, whatever. Did you, at the beginning, think it was going to last? or Do you think it would have lasted as long as it did? And secondly, were you scared because you have a family as well? Certainly didn't think it would last as long. Obviously, the, I'd never heard the word furlough before. So my wife, she works in a gym. So obviously the gym had the clothes. She was very well looked after, by the way. The company looked after her fantastically. I, on the other hand, consider myself very lucky because I was doing a breakfast show and I, I, I my producer worked remotely, so he produced me from his house. So I was walking to the uh, the tower every morning and it was eerie walking from L8, where I live, uh, down to the tower. It was so eerie. It was just like nothing I'd ever really experienced before. Um, and then I was coming into the tower, which was normally loads and loads of people, loads and loads of staff. It was like a ghost ship, but I had to do four hours of breakfast radio and deliver and keep in mind, you know, how people are feeling and how people are going about the day and starting the day because it was different for every single human being that I was talking to and every single person in, in the UK. So I didn't think it would go on as long. Um, it certainly dragged his feet and... Recently, it was the second anniversary of 
Freedom Day in England when all restrictions were lifted. And I've got to say, I, all those things that we took for granted in life, I thoroughly embraced when we got them back, our freedom back again. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, were you conscious of walking through town and not seeing people thinking that you have got that thing that you can get out when people were locked in? Yeah, I, 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 funny, I was always expecting to be stopped, but I never did get stopped, especially at that time of the morning. Um, I always expected if someone said, what are you doing, where are you going? Um, but I, I never did. I mean, there was no one around. There was nobody around. It was just like, I've got the entire city to myself. Genuinely was like that. Um, so, uh, you know, it was weird. Looking back, I can't really remember because your your head was slightly confused but then you had to get your head in gear at 6am to do a show yeah. do you know do you ever take for granted this amazing place you work absolutely not 18 and a half years i've been broadcasting from the top of this tower and i never take it for granted any weather it looks fabulous it can look scary when it's the winds are howling and the tower is swaying and in the snow and blizzards it looks stunning if you get a clear you know gorgeous morning you see the sun coming up in the distance you can actually see the big one over in blackpool never will i and never will i if i work here for another 18 and a half years uh will i take the views from uh, this fabulous building for granted have you got a big plan or are you one of those people that just plods on um i've got to that age i'm 56 so if somebody was to say to me you're going to see out your career um, for the next X amount of years at Greatest Hits Radio, I'd be more than happy to hold my hands up and say, yeah, that's good, that's good. That's not lacking in ambition because I'm, I'm always change, always improve. I can always improve uh, on what I do. And I do, with the help of my bosses. I'm a producer as well. Um, you know, and every day is a new day. Um, so I've got an agent who's trying to get me to do a little bit more of the television side of things. And uh, I'm quite happy to be behind the mic and uh, and and do it from a studio but you know sometimes maybe you just got to go and do other things and add a little bit more color to the tapestry of life did you ever want to open a restaurant no i didn't because i wouldn't be a good businessman uh, i would have gone into partnership with a businessman and i would have been the, uh, the you know chef proprietor kind of thing but uh, me and even sitting down to do my basic accounts which i give to my accountants it, it's it's a pain i'm not disciplined in that respect to finish off, and I've, I've learned a lot from you today and learned a lot about you, which has been great. The hardest question I ever get is when somebody asks for advice. I want to get into radio. Years ago, I could answer that. Now, I can't. I know exactly what, what you mean by saying that. Um, I don't even know. There's not many hospital radio stations uh, now compared to what there was. Um. I would always recommend to know exactly what kind of presenter you would want to be and then listen to presenters that you would aspire to be like, but not copy, just aspire to be slightly like, and listen to them and how they deliver a link, how they deliver a punchline, how they deliver something quite serious. And listen to how they start. I always think of a, when I open my mic, it's a starter main course pudding. You start your link with a little bit of a tease, then the chunk of it, and then the payoff. Um, and I would, I would really recommend listening to people that you really admire 
and you would aspire to be like. That's that's all I would say. And then listen to people maybe that aren't your style and, and maybe pick up things from them because you're always going to learn in radio. The person, the, 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 the day I think I've, I know it all is the day I need to hang up my headphones because I think it's a, it's a learning curve and you're learning on a daily basis almost. Simon Ross, this uh, podcast goes all over the world now. We're getting something like 600,000 downloads a month. So people all over the world will be listening to this. How can they listen to Rossi in the morning? <laughs> well, there is a free-to-download Greatest Hits radio app, of course, and you can listen to that app, I think, just about ev- anywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously in the UK, if you just say, um, Alexa, play Greatest Hits radio, ask your smart speaker, or turn on your radio, your good old-fashioned wireless. And listen, uh, we are an FM and DAB as well. So there's plenty of ways to which you can listen to uh, the Greatest Hits at breakfast. I want to leave you with this picture. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm actually in Rossi's studio, so I've got Simon sitting right opposite me. I've got a cardboard cutout of him behind, <laughs> and I've got four pictures on the left-hand side to me uh, of him. So I'm surrounded by Rossi in the morning. Simon Ross, thank you so much. Thank you, Pete. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Why not subscribe? You know it's free. So join us and tell your friends. It's great going on walks and doing whatever you want to do and then putting Pete Price on. We've got a back catalogue of over 100 interviews. Join us. Subscribe. It's free.